This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome back to Sexy and Surreal, a David Lynch and David Cronenberg podcast. I am Joe Lipset, and I'm joined by Terry Menard. Hey, Joe. Boy, uh, what a I, I feel like we've had quite um, whiplash between these last three movies, and I'm I'm really excited to dig into our our latest one. Mm hmm. Yeah. So, folks, if you are new to the podcast, we are alternating back and forth between David Lynch's and David Cronenberg's oeuvre, and we are going chronologically with their features. So we are back to David Lynch territory this week, his second feature film. And yeah, whiplash is the right word for this, Terry, because we're talking about the elephant man. I had never seen it. You had never seen it. And I thought, oh, this is kind of a straightforward drama. Yeah, I, I all I had seen about this is, of course, some some pictures of the makeup and the, mm-hmm. the, the rather striking poster of uh, John Merrick standing in a black cloak with like kind of a burlap sack over his head and a hat. Uh-huh. And so it gives you this sort of haunting imagery that I'm now realizing reminds me a bit of Eraserhead. Mm-hmm. Like I can see a clear line of this black and white kind of dark shades of darkness and, and light with a very striking image at the center. Like I'm, I'm seeing some connections here, mm-hmm. but um, I too was like, okay, we're going in for a, a rather two hours and four minutes, a rather long, straightforward drama. And mm-hmm. I was pleasantly surprised by what we ended up getting out of this one. Yeah, me too. And like you, I was curious to see if we were going to find any kind of similarities or through lines between Lynch's very experimental first film, which was independently produced, albeit with, yes, you know, like some celebrity all-stars who were championing it. And then we get this, which is a studio-backed film. You know, we've got Mel Brooks producing this, question mark, question mark, question mark. (laughs) Talking about another person that is like, you know, as in the first one, some high-profile people sort of Mm -hmm. helping shepherd his career. Yeah, Mel Brooks attached to this. What a surprise to see that. Love it. And amusingly enough, Mel Brooks will come back in a future episode, albeit on the Cronenberg side. Oh, okay. That's 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 fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking about Mel Brooks, though, I did find that he seems like a, a genuinely great person in some oh, ways. Yes, amazing. So, you know, he had this movie. He wanted it to be produced out of his studio, but he didn't want to attach his name to it because mm-hmm. he was afraid people would see, you know, Mel Brooks and think it's gonna be full of fart jokes and be a comedy. Right. So he like produced it. His studio. What is it, Brooks? I think Brooksfield. Brooksfield, yeah. Uh, helped produce the the film. He saw Racerhead, fell in love with David Lynch's film, and was like, mm-hmm. "You're hired." After a meeting at a burger joint, like it's it's just so it's just so wild. Uh huh. It's like, wait, is this how movies get made? Really? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, The Elephant Man comes three years after Eraserhead, and interestingly enough, this is, I think, one of the only films that we are going to see that was not entirely written by David Lynch. So we have a screenplay by Christopher DeVore and Eric Berggren, and then David Lynch does work on it as well. And 
I don't want to say that there's a tension between Lynch and what he is contributing to this and what the other two are putting in here, but it would be easy for folks to say, oh, you know, we can see the sort of straightforward, streamlined narrative, and then there's these touches of surrealism and darkness underneath the surface that we will come to associate with Lynch. But I do love that, you know, the film opens and closes with (laughs) highly surreal dream imagery. And you're like, oh, hello, David Lynch. Good to be back. (laughs) Absolutely. When the opening started, I was like, okay, is this here we go again? (laughs) I was like, is this going to be what the movie's about? Is this going to be like another, uh, is it going to be Eraserhead 2.0 in that regard? Mm -hmm. Because it has like, Mixes of elephants superimposed on a screen with a beautiful mm-hmm. woman's eyes. There's a lot of close-ups on her face, revealing like her features and whatnot. The music has sort of a carnival-type feel to it. Mm-hmm. And then she gets attacked by elephants. Right. And it looks as if she's being ravaged in some ways. It's mm-hmm. kind of weird. And there's explosions and babies cries and like, okay, so we are kind of giving an, an origin story, a myth of this, of the creation of John Merrick in a way. And it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, it definitely feels much more in line with Eraserhead than I was expecting. Yes. Yeah. But then we transition and all of a sudden, you know, we are in Victorian London. We've got Anthony Hopkins and it's very much a, I mean, I've seen people describe this as cripping up, which is a little uncomfortable. This is 1980. So we weren't in the habit of allowing authentic performers to portray themselves so this is john hurt under just an absolute metric ton of makeup yeah but the story is relatively conventional right you know it's a good-natured doctor dr trees played by anthony hopkins who discovers a man who is in the carnival freak show and he requires medical assistance because he's being really horribly mistreated And the story becomes a kind of weird savior thing, but it's also about humanizing this person that everyone regards as a freak just because they look different. And it creates a lot of empathy, I think. Yeah, I do too. What what really struck me on on watching this was the fact that uh, when everyone views John Merrick as a monster, Mm -hmm. he... Or he kind of plays into the role in some ways. He's okay. He's quiet. He doesn't talk. He's mm. he's obviously terrified. He says later, mm-hmm. and he's he's afraid of showing that sort of intelligence. But the moment that Anthony Hopkins is tre- Trevs, is that is it Treves? Treves? Sure. Freddie, I'll call him Freddie. <laughs> <laughs> his wife does. Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, when 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 Freddie starts to like show him kindness and wants to talk to him all of a sudden they realize that he is not as as they quote an imbecile he is not Mm -hmm. brain dead he he can function he can speak he is very well read and so it's that moment of showing someone humanity and then them realizing that they can be human Mm -hmm. and when he's treated like that he gives it back in threefold and it's it's such a i don't know there's a emotional warmth there that i was not expecting to see in in a david lynch film (laughs) yeah agreed there were a couple of points where i thought you know this is almost 
this is going to sound diminishing or disparaging, and I don't mean it this way, but it's almost giving a kind of lifetime movie vibe to oh. it, where we're telling the real life story of someone because John Merrick is actually Joseph Merrick in real life, but this is based on a real person. And a lot of these accounts have been documented in various books and you know, there's a stage play as well, but it's a little bit different. But at the end of the day, it it is very much about this man who only really becomes a man when others reveal that he is worth something. So mm-hmm. I found a lot of the messaging really empowering, but in that way that it feels like the film wants us to feel good about celebrating goodness, if that makes sense. Like... And again, I don't mean that in a negative way because I really ended up enjoying the movie. But I don't know. There's almost something congratulatory Well, also this is very clearly a tragedy at the end of the day. Yeah, I, I was struggling with this because um, and I, I do think the film sort of leans into having us question what is going on in here because mm-hmm. we, we do have when we're first introduced to Merrick. We see him with uh, Bites, I believe is his last name, for, uh, played by Freddie Jones, Mr. Bites. Yes. And Ooh. he, of course, is selling of, you know, uh, him as a, as a freak show, kind of sideshow type character. He's obviously taking advantage of him, all of this kind of stuff. And then mm-hmm. once he goes to the hospital again, you almost have this this idea that it's a different location, but it's the same things happening. Oh, where for you sure. have. Anthony Hopkins is uh, Freddie Trevs. He's interested in him in in a scientific way, but also there's the opening scene where he introduces him to his you know entire governing board of, mm-hmm. of doctors, and it's behind again a curtain, just like Bites was doing. So I do think the movie plays with this idea of of saviorism, but mm-hmm. I think it also sort of I don't know. I don't think it necessarily interrogates that enough. No, but it does bring it up. It does. Yeah, I was actually happy to see that there is a moment of self-reflection in Shreve. So after he introduces uh, John to his wife, and there's that really powerful moment where he begins to cry because Teresa's wife, Anne, is a beautiful woman and she's treating him with kindness and he's never never had a beautiful woman treat him with anything other than horror or disdain and it's really powerful but i think it makes trees realize what am i doing with this man like why did i help him in the first place why did i show him off to my colleagues why did i bring him to the hospital and it's not out of the goodness of his heart It is because he wanted to advance his own professional career. And I really appreciated that the film gives him that moment. I just wish it had taken it a little bit further. Yeah, me too. Because there's that moment where he asks himself, am I a good man or am Mm -hmm. I a bad man? And it's that idea you mentioned earlier about like humanity and goodness that I think is at the heart of this of this movie. And I I think we see it in all the the characters making a decision whether they are a a good person or a bad person. We see with the night porter Mm. who is, you know, turning Merrick's home into a sideshow. And we see it with Bites who kidnaps him and takes him to go make more money off of him. So Mm -hmm. we see all these characters making a decision. And in the middle of it is Treves asking whether he which side of it is he's on. 
Yeah, for sure. I think the work done with Mrs. Motherhead, the mm-hmm. uh, the sort of matron of the hospital, played by Wendy Hiller, I almost more appreciated hers because Treves tries to say, oh, well, you know, how are you any different from me or these other socialites who come to visit John when he gains a little bit of political and social capital because the queen fucking announces him and he gets coverage in the newspaper. And it's really interesting that Mrs. Mother's head claps back very strongly she's like okay well maybe i did treat him that way in the beginning but i'm the one who's actually looking out for his interests and i'm the one who's thinking of him as a real person like she's the one who almost prompts that self-reflection in trees and i like the fact that she was able to acknowledge it but also condemn others for making that connection like he's still being treated like a freak show and even the the switch in how he's portrayed, like how John is demonstrated or shown off to the crowd. It's behind bars at the freak show. It's behind bars when Treve shows him to his colleagues. And then it opens up into the window when the night porter brings that group of people. But he's always still being presented to the masses, right? Like in a way, he never has a home, even though everyone wants him to think, oh, the hospital is your home now. Like they they do this big congratulatory celebration. And the reality is, is that because of his condition, because of his deformity and the way that people treat people who look different, he will always be living a life on display. Absolutely. Going back to Mrs. Mother's head, what I really liked about that moment when she kind of, as you said, claps back at Treves. Mm-hmm. We, before that, we got two specific situations where, where polite, I'm using that in, in mm-hmm. you know, quotations, mm-hmm. polite society has come to view him. The first one is with Mrs. Kendall, who is, you know, bright lights of London stage, like she's from the stage and she comes to him and she doesn't, I, I don't know, I don't, I didn't get the, the idea that she was gawking at him this entire time. She brought him no. Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. She brought him a signed picture, an autograph of her. Mm-hmm. She even says, oh, Mr. Merrick, you're not an elephant man at all. You're you're Romeo. Right. And the news reporting about her says that, you know, she was visiting a friend. And so we have that. And then we mm-hmm. have that contrasted with the next scene where he is pouring tea for a man and a woman. And the woman is obviously incredibly nervous about being there. She looks terrified. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And he's like giving them tea and trying to have a polite conversation. And they are obviously there to gawk. And that mm-hmm. is when Miss Mother's Head says that I don't understand why it is you allow that sort of people in there. You saw the expressions on their faces. They didn't hide their disgust. Mm-hmm. He's only being stared at all over again. And I, that was a moment where I was like, yes, because Miss yes. Mother Head comes across <laughs> as like this, you know, staunch, you know, kind of gruff kind of person. But then we mm-hmm. see like that facade go away and she actually cares about him. Hmm. Yeah. Whereas, you know, we see some of the younger nurses who work in the hospital and they're gossiping about him before he arrives. And then later on, they're shedding tears when they find out that he's on his deathbed and he's going to be feted at the theater. And you're just like, you know, yes, they came around and it doesn't mean that they're bad people, but also they are incredibly disingenuous. And yeah. I get the impression that Mother's Head is really the only character who has been telling the truth apart from Kendall, who I agree with you. I'm, 
I had a lot of trouble reading her intentions early on where, you know, she hears about John in the paper and she says, I would really like to meet this man. And then she Mm -hmm. sets something up and we're all very deeply concerned that she is there for the wrong reasons. And even she initially seems uncertain, like I give him the picture and then what do I do? do right and it's only when she realizes he is a fucking human being and he deserves to be treated as such and they make this connection over the shakespeare and honestly one of the most genuinely heartfelt scenes in the entire movie it doesn't hurt that it's Anne fucking bancroft who is a gem like she's so good in this movie terry Oh, she is fantastic. And absolutely that that moment where they're basically kind of running lines almost mm-hmm. out of out of Romeo and Juliet is just it was it was one so of the more cute. It was cute. <laughs> absolutely. But it, it also had like this genuine heart behind it where she, as you said, finally realizes, you know, that she can have a conversation with him, that she mm-hmm. can talk with him that I don't know, it just it really like it warmed my heart. <laughs> yes. So Brenna and I have had conversations about ableism and, you know, the way that people treat other people who are different than them. Like we covered the movie and the book Wonder on our YA podcast and similar kind of complaints about cripping up and, you know, casting Jacob Tremblay and them putting a bunch of prosthetic makeup on him as opposed to going with people who are living that authentic experience. And it's a, obviously a very different age to talk about a film that was made in the late 2010s compared to a movie from 1980, but it's interesting how Wonder has none of this self-reflection in it. It's 100% just a feel-good movie. Like, look at this special little boy and how he's changing hearts and minds. And one of the things that intrigues me about The Elephant Man is that it is simultaneously John's story, which has these moments of heartfelt joy and wonder but really, I think is a huge tragedy. And then it's trying to do more of that sort of feel good self empowerment, like we can uplift other people who are disadvantaged or different in Treves's story. And I think there is a bit of a weird tension there in that the film isn't entirely successful because it doesn't know who is the protagonist of this story, like whose story is more important. To me, I want to know John's story. I care less about Trees, but I think I'm also looking at it through eyes that have had to see things like wonder come about where it's all facile and surface and they're there isn't any kind of contention to it because we'd rather just feel good about ourselves. Yeah. Cinema does like to use those kinds of movies. I was immediately mm-hmm. thinking about the blind side in a way. Oh yeah. Yeah. There right. Go. Uh, so there's that idea of, Oh, it makes us feel good because we are doing something for the less fortunate. And 100%. so yeah. that I, I do think there is an element of that here, but I also will say that I, I, I think that David Lynch sees himself as the elephant man. I think he sees himself mm. in some ways as sort of an outsider right? in a lot of, a lot of his, his films. I'm guessing from what I know of them. Okay. And particularly just coming from Eraserhead where it, it definitely feels like the character in there is also an outsider. And mm-hmm. there's, we, we discussed about how maybe Lynch saw himself a little bit in that character in Eraserhead. I do right. think that he has an affinity for, the people that are outside of society and so i do think Mm -hmm. that if there is maybe um tension between the scripts but between christopher devore eric 
Bergen, Bergren and him, it might be that they see it as a blindside and right. he sees it as a story of John Merrick. <laughs> Does that make sense? I 100% understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, right? Because this is what happens when you have an auteur or someone like David Lynch, even though he's obviously very early in his career still, you can tell that he's got a very specific eye. And you're right that he is building up this this fascination with certain types of characters, certain types of stories, even in just the second feature. And yeah, I mean, I think the care and attention to detail, making sure that we're seeing John in a multiplicity of ways, like we're framing him in certain ways so that it's tricky, right? Because yeah. the film plays it coy in about the first act where we're never really seeing what John looks like. He's either covered or he's being shot in shadow or we're seeing him from behind. We see him illuminated on the sheet when Treve shows him to his colleagues. Right. And it's obviously very deliberate. Like Lynch is playing He's playing bites in a way. He's playing the performative, hey, don't you want to know what this man looks like? Well, I'm not going to give it to you. You've got to earn the price of admission. And yet there is so much humanity after we finally get to see what he looks like that we get an understanding of like, how does this affect him? Like his inability to sleep lying down and how we have to we get shots of him sleeping with his head between his legs because it's yeah. the only way he won't asphyxiate. And I feel like there's so much compassion in the camera work, if that makes sense. No, it absolutely does. The way that cinematographer Freddie Francis shoots John Merrick is is definitely in a way that evokes humanity. Mm -hmm. there, there's the shot, and I mean, I will probably get to the end a bit more, but that was a shot in particular that that worked for me the most is when he you see his bed full of pillows and he is stripping them one by one because he just wants to lay down mm -hmm. like a I'm using quotations normal person. Yeah. Because throughout the entire movie we see him in the most uncomfortable position. Oh God. Just it's almost like a stress position mm -hmm. of of him trying to sleep because of the weight of his head and being able to actually breathe slash afraid of breaking his neck so mm -hmm. there's there's all of that and the way that the camera captures him is so heartbreaking in a yeah. lot of ways yeah it's so easy to care for this individual but it's not in the same kind of treacly way that i was yes. afraid of you know i think it would be easy to make this a very straightforward tale about this man who was ostracized by society and then he found the warmth of a few good people mm -hmm. and he was able to end his life on a, a slightly happier note. And I like that we get those moments because I think this film would be really, really fucking difficult to watch if it wasn't. But I'm also strangely proud of Lynch for not leaning away from the horror of what mm -hmm. ultimately happens to this man. There's, you know, what we would call things like microaggressions in the way that he's treated by nearly everyone at different points in the film. But then there's also absolutely horrific moments in this movie. Like I texted you and said, I'm waiting for the shoe to drop because we know something bad is going to happen. Like all this stuff with bites and jim the night portman you know it's going to come to a head you know it's not going to be good even still 
I was not prepared for how horrific the Night Porter sequence is. Yeah, that that one really hits hard, particularly because I and this is, I think, a, such a smart way of doing it is that throughout the movie, while we're we're having these sort of touching moments between mm-hmm. um, John and Traves and, you know, some people at the hospital staff, we, we cut two scenes of the night porter who is taking money. And, you know, mm-hmm. we, we get these little interjections of this ominous other thing that is happening against their knowledge Mm -hmm. and i just i love the way that he inserts them because it definitely feels like kind of a a horror movie moment where it's like we're we're building something where there's you know like a in a home invasion movie where we Mm -hmm. have like the people inside that are unaware and then we kind of get glimpses of what's happening outside the house we're waiting for honestly we're waiting for the night porter to infiltrate his house Mm -hmm. and do something horrible and when it finally does happen and it's assault and it's it is yeah it's sexual assault and it's Mm -hmm. it's just there's there's so much going on in that scene that it's like you want to see the real horror i think lynch is saying this is the real horror right here Mm -hmm. yeah it's absolutely not the person who just looks different who we should have empathy for it's the people who are profiting from it but also doing it in the most disgusting fashion and i think the hardest thing for me because we know it's going to come. We know something bad is going to happen. We anticipate that it's going to involve some kind of freak show performance. Because, the, you know, the Night Porter does not actually see John as a human being. He right. sees him merely as something to profit off of. So we know it's going to be bad. And when it does, I thought it was just going to be that these people show up at the window. And then they come in the door. And these people start throwing maybe society women maybe sex workers i don't know we don't really know anything about these people at all except that they're not good and that would all be tolerable it would be hard but we could get through this it's you can almost see the light leave john's eyes he goes almost into a fugue kind of comatose state where he doesn't even respond anymore he he goes limp and it's hard to say that John Hurt is giving an amazing performance because I wouldn't even know it was him if I <laughs> no. didn't have like Wikipedia or the credits. But he, especially in this scene, the physicality of his performance and the way that John just stops reacting. He's not even a human being anymore because he has just become the plaything of these horrible people. And it's so hard to watch. Yeah, it really is because it brings us back to his moment when we first meet him, where mm-hmm. no one is showing him any humanity and he is no. the monster in, yes. in their in their eyes. And so then we, we've spent an entire movie where we've seen those layers pulled back and we've seen the intelligence and the, the caring and the emotional level of the emotional way that he handles things. I, I was thinking, again, just as you were talking, the moment when he, he cries because Anne... Mm-hmm. Treves's wife is is showing kindness to him and that just we see the humanity pouring through and then by this moment he is back to where he was in the beginning it's like all of that progress is just gone in an instant because of people's evilness mm-hmm. yeah and really we we never get back to that i mean there's a certain catharsis in the way that 
when he's rediscovered after Bites abducts him, <sighs> takes him on the tour, locks him in a cage with uh, monkeys and other animals. Like, it's all just terrible stuff. And you think, okay, well, hopefully we're going to get some kind of semi-happy resolution because, I mean, if you look at the Wikipedia entry, you know that he is found, he gets returned to the hospital, he mm -hmm. gets celebrated at the theater, and all of that stuff is nice, but it can't take away the scenes of violence and what we've seen it do to John. And for me, the other incredibly powerful scene is that moment where I was so afraid, Terry, when he's making his way back to London and he's in the station and he runs over the little girl in his haste to get away from these terrible boys and a mob chases mm -hmm. him into a men's bathroom and corners him and obviously i think this is the kind of emotional climax of the film where we are so afraid of what's going to happen next and you get that powerful moment where john says you know i'm not an elephant man i'm not a monster i am a man and i think some people would construe this as oh this is really empowering like he's finally standing up for himself he's using his words he's advocating for himself and I I couldn't get any of that out of this scene because I just it felt like we were seeing the worst of humanity in one fell swoop. No, absolutely. I, I felt the same way because throughout the, the majority of the movie where we are following him with with a quote unquote polite society, it's mm -hmm. a little bit different. And then at this moment when. All of the airs are stripped away when his, you know, his doctor is not there. When the uh, the things that make him seem like a human are mm -hmm. gone, right? We see the worst in humanity at this at this very moment. And that moment when he is pressed up against the wall of the bathroom and the crowd has just filled the bathroom behind him. So many people. <laughs> the violence, yes, and the violence is just so implicit in that situation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he ends up just collapsing. Because he's like, he's he's so tired of this. He's so tired of not being seen for who he is inside. Mm -hmm. That it's just, it, it's not a, it was not an empowering moment for me. It was like a. Uh, it's almost like resignation, right? Yeah. Yeah. It just, it really, it just really affected me. It was, I, I think it was probably one of the most affecting scenes in this, in this movie. But it's not because it was a man standing up for himself. It was mm -mm. because he had nothing else to do. There was nothing else he could do. Yeah. And society is horrible. <laughs> and society is horrible. Everything is horrible. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I'm happy that we end up getting those scenes in the theater. And I, you know, again, it feels a it little false, too late. Though. Yeah, it does. That's the part where I was like, oh, I'm feeling this tension again between the film trying to be a little self-congratulatory. You know, oh, well, sure, that bad stuff happened, but in the safety of this polite society with the queen's blessing and this famous actress, you know, protecting him and celebrating him, everything is good. And then he can go off and die in peace. And I'm just like, no, no, that's really not what I'm taking away from this movie. Yeah, again, because again, we have all the people that had been protecting him. He's back in that in that society. And so now then he can be celebrated again. And so I was like, mm -hmm. it's just a bit of a, it's a little too much of a whiplash between seeing the worst in society and then seeing people giving him a standing ovation in the theater, because we all know that if this was not taking place in the theater and if Mrs. Kendall wasn't there, he would not mm -hmm. be getting that standing ovation. Nothing has changed. No. 
and we i i do think that the movie doesn't necessarily give us a, a lot of um closure because again bites doesn't get it he doesn't mm-hmm. bite the bullet he just <laughs> <laughs> he just sneaks away into the night like you know that he's going to do it again. He's going to find another meal ticket, another person that he can um, exploit. And then he's just going to continue on doing what he's been doing, getting drunk and, and beating his, his poor people that that he's exploiting. It's just, Mm -hmm. we don't get that sense of closure. And so when we do get a sense of closure for John's character path, it does feel a little, I don't know, feel it kind of verges into melodrama where he gets the one perfect day Mm -hmm. and now he wants to die. Yeah. I I will say, and again, I think we're looking at this through very contemporary modern lenses, and I, yeah. I'm not sure how much of this was intended, or if we're finding negative aspects in it where maybe there weren't, or or people wouldn't have read it this way back mm-hmm. then. But I feel that there's a weird classist argument here as well, right? Like, we see poor people, people who are in the train station, people who frequent freak shows as the people who are most likely to mock him, to hurt him, Mm -hmm. to hunt him. And then he ends up back in this protective bubble of polite, high society, and they all celebrate him. But there's an artificiality to that. Like you said, if he didn't have the protection of Treves and Miss Kendall and the fucking queen, he would have been thrown out on his ass out of the hospital. And I don't know, I'm just uncomfortable with this idea that, oh, well, polite society protected him and the lowbrow or middle class people were the ones who hunted him. And I'm like, no, that's too simplistic. It is. And I, I almost feel that, again, the standing ovation at the end was more for them than it was yes. for him. Oh, yes. Because, again, we have, like, look at the good that we've done. And mm-hmm. so it, it's it, it's hard to not see it that way, I guess, because right? of the way <laughs> cinema has been over the, the years, because of, like you said, wonder, and because of movies like The Blind Side, where mm-hmm. we are celebrating some rich people kind of taking in Right. A poor person who needs a little bit of help. And it's not about the poor person. It is about the rich white people and mm-hmm. them doing something good for society. It just yeah. so it's hard to it's hard to view this film in a vacuum because mm-hmm. of cinema that has followed since, if that makes sense. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And we should acknowledge that this is one of David Lynch's most celebrated and recognized films. So, uh, you know. We've got eight Academy Award nominations, and it won a bunch of BAFTAs. The movie is the reason that we have the Best Makeup Award at the Oscars. I saw that and went, oh, that's 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 amazing. The power of Lynch right there. <laughs> there we go. And yeah, we should give all credit to Christopher Tucker, who is the person who created this amazing makeup. Um, I will say, reading the description of how long it took John Hurt to get into this and <laughs> what it ended up doing to him <laughs> sounds absolutely terrible. Wait, what did it end up doing to him? I, I, I heard it how long it took, but I didn't notice anything else. So it didn't physically hurt him, but he was on the record as saying the process was so onerous. I think it took them eight hours to apply. So he would go into work at like 5 a.m., be ready to shoot at like just after noon, and then they would do it for like 10 hours or something. And then it took up to two hours to get off. And he said that it was so taxing and onerous that it almost made him lose his love of cinema. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. But um, 
I feel like we talked a lot about the narrative, and I wouldn't mind talking about some of the technical aspects, because Terry, you're the sound guy, and I'm not, but I would love to know if you found any similarities between this and Eraserhead. So I, I did find, I, I, I'm going to broaden this a little bit, because there is a little bit of visual things in here, mm-hmm. too. But the sound is not as omnipresent, I would say, as it was in um, Eraserhead, where it's just sound the entire movie <laughs> all encompassing yeah yeah but there are there are interjections here where i'm seeing some things that are a, kind of a carryover from Eraserhead. first of all this focus on the industrialness mm-hmm. like there's a lot of shots of the smokestacks and there's a lot of shots of mounds of coal that are, are mm-hmm. you know being used to to fuel progress there's a really small moment where the nurses are turning down for the night and they pull lever and the the flames are, you know, lessened and to, mm-hmm. to like darken the rooms a bit. And so there's this focus on this kind of society as a large that we are that we're seeing here, where we also have the idea of like there's there's a shot of, of men, very sweaty men pushing and pulling on machines. Mm-hmm. And the very first thing that we see with Treves is he's doing um he's kind of performing surgery on a man and he's like, the machines did this. So there's right. this push and pull of like what I think is this sort of progress of industrialism yes. Yes. that we see in a racer head is sort of like the post-apocalyptic version mm-hmm. of that. And I would say there's a, a narrative through line here and it's in these scenes too, where we get sort of the, the, the sound that I felt re- reminiscent of a racer head as well as the imagery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really taken, particularly when we get our introduction to the hospital in all the ways you were just mentioning, but even when they move John into his room up in the sort of isolation ward, which mm-hmm. looks not unlike a prison, yeah, but it's uh, located directly beneath the belfry, and there's the sounds of all of the uh, gears and the, clock the clocks ticking yeah. and, and moving and grinding. And then, of course, he's awoken in the middle of the night by the loud ringing. And yeah, it feels almost like, well, this is what progress means or what we must suffer through in the name of progress. And I think there's some really fascinating commentary embedded in that when we look at how polite society or what progress looks like within this world, right? Like, this is meant to be London on the cusp of that industrial revolution, like things are getting better people. And yet, we've got the freak show and the people who are gathering in the pubs, willing to pay money for you know a low rent attraction and it's that mixing and mingling of the clean prosperous world of the hospital with the sort of dark cobblestone streets and you're like this is all modern london yeah we we get it there's a there's a huge contrast between what we see with polite society and then also the smokestacks and the the sweaty men that whole mm-hmm, scene mm-hmm. where they're on opposite sides of the machine i don't know what they're doing exactly but they're pushing and pulling it back and forth and we see mm-hmm. the sort of soot and the grime and we we get moments where the the visual language is bringing us back to sort of um i would say hammer horror or even ah. universal monsters of the the idea of london there's the there's the shot of one when john merrick is is rescued from his cage and there and he and his his troop of performers are walking through that there's like fog and it it just it evokes mm-hmm. a sort of like Jack the Ripper evokes sort oh, of yes. Victorian London of what we've seen in, in film. 
mm-hmm. in that in that perspective. So we have that as well as we have the again the high society of of Treves's house and and even John trying to kind of acclimate himself into that. I love the there is one contrasting moment where when he first goes to Treves's house and he sees the the pictures on the mantel. By the mm-hmm. end of the movie, he has recreated that in his own his own home. He has right. a mantle above the fireplace, and he has all the pictures of the women and the people in his life that have given him pictures. And so mm-hmm. we see him sort of like acclimating himself into that. But then there underneath it is this darkness of soot and coal and mm-hmm. cancerous. Yeah. And we see that even in his change of costume, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. you mentioned the sort of iconic poster art, which is how he spends the first part of the film. And when he's in the hospital before he kind of gets moved to the better room, he's only wearing like a nightgown. And he's very much one of these common people who come to the hospital for treatment. But then when they shift him, all of a sudden he's dressed up in like a three piece suit. He looks like a fine upstanding gentleman, but I don't know. Maybe I'm not giving the film enough credit for having an argument or an agenda around class, because it definitely does seem to be saying something about how easy it is to try to transition between the two, but how quickly you can fall back down. Like it only takes one bad incident and suddenly you're back on the streets, you're behind bars, you're in with those people who are, yeah, the, you know, the coal industrialist people, as opposed to the people who are having tea and dressing up in fineries. Yeah, I, I do. I don't. I don't think the movie necessarily interrogates that as much as we 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 probably want them to. Right. <laughs> For sure. I did. one thing. One little funny thing that just popped in my head while you were, while you were talking about his his costume in the beginning is that I was watching this and I was like, wait, did Friday the Thirteenth rip off? Right. This? Baghead Jason. Yeah. And because it's it's very similar in that design, and I did find an article talking about how Friday Thirteenth Part Two was releasing soon after, and they were afraid that they were going to be seen as copying and or making fun of the Elephant Man series topic. Ooh, huh. I guess they talked about this in the Shutter docu series Behind the Monsters. I haven't seen it, but apparently they talked about that it was never their intention to to copy, and the whole crew worried that people would be offended or not be able to take Jason Voorhees seriously because huh. of the timing of the films. Yeah, because we're talking 1980 for this movie, and then Friday Part 2 comes out the next year, and this movie would have been in the public consciousness because of all of that awards attention. Right. Huh. I I initially was like, oh, Terry, we're just being horror people. We're seeing horror in everything. But no, <laughs> I could easily see that connection. Yeah, it, I was I was thinking about it in particular because of, you know, Mel Brooks wanting to not have his name attached to it because mm. they want to make sure the subject matter gets taken seriously. And then what do you have right. a year later? You have Jason, who is, again, <laughs> a deformed individual yeah. wearing a burlap sack like it's it's kind of. Oh, gosh, I don't know. It's kind of hard to uh, mm-hmm. separate Once you that. See it, you can't unsee it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, do you have any final thoughts on The Elephant Man? Well, I did want to briefly talk about the real life story. Because one thing that I did find is that this, I mean, this in a way, this is a biopic, right? In a Mm -hmm, a mm -hmm. sort of different sort of way, but it is. And it hits a lot of the same character beats from, well, character beats, the real life story beats that I found when I was looking up the the true story of of Joseph Merrick, Mm -hmm. where... 
all the characters are very sane that there is Mrs. Kendall was someone that came to him. Like these are Mm -hmm. all, there's all these factual moments. One thing that kind of made me sad though, is that when he died, they kept his, his bones and his bones are still in a medical facility in Mm -hmm. London, I believe. I believe so. Yeah. And it's not on display, but the fact that we have his bones Mm-hmm. Just continues this idea of yep, him he's being still a freak, a freak show. show. We're still looking at him in that way, and there was a kind of a pull at one point where people were saying, you know, because one thing that I don't think the movie necessarily well, kind of does a little bit talks about is his his Christian faith, and people were mm-hmm. saying, why aren't we giving him a Christian burial? Right. Yeah. And apparently in May of 2019, they did find Joseph Merrick's grave where the soft tissue was buried. Oh, gross, Terry. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. So he does now have he does have a grave that was in in London. And there's this article on the BBC about about a woman trying to she'd written a a biography of Merrick and wanted to find out where where he was buried. And Mm -hmm. They did find it in the, I, I think it's in Leicester. Okay. Hmm. But it's just, it's a sad, like, story, you know, that even after death, he's still, still being treated just yeah. as he was in life. And it just, I don't know. It just made me sad. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. It's almost like, okay, well, I guess we learned nothing from telling his story several times over with an award-winning film with multiple stage productions like what lesson have we taken away that we're still in real life treating him like a medical oddity instead of a human being yeah hmm that's upsetting yeah sorry to go there (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say and now we end the podcast (laughs) okay well terry if people want to talk about that horrible state of affairs how would they get a hold of you <laughs> oh please don't talk about that horrible state of affairs with me but uh, you can find me at gaily dreadful on twitter and instagram and joe if they want to talk about um anthony hopkins's restrained performance ah yes <laughs> where can they find you <laughs> I can be reached at B stole my remote and that's the letter B. And yeah, I mean, we, we barely talked about him. I do think he's quite good in this movie. It took me 15 minutes to realize that was him. I was like, it looks so familiar. Who is this charming gentleman? <laughs> well, it, it was nice seeing him in a performance that wasn't seen chewing and or campy because I do mm-hmm. feel I know a lot of people like his performance in Silence of the Lambs. I find mm-hmm. it to be very campy and I feel that his Ooh. performances since then have like been very yeah. exaggerated. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. So it was kind of nice to see him performing in like a I don't know more restrained fashion. Yeah, it, it's interesting when you have a certain perspective on an actor because of an iconic role, and then you go to see what they look like before they got that thing that kind of defined their career. And you're right. I mean, I feel this way with a lot of actors of a certain age, like Jack Nicholson, Diane Keaton people who they've almost become yeah like they become their persona and they don't give performances anymore they're just always themselves on screen so you're right it is nice to see something where you're like oh i always knew you were a good actor i was never questioning that but it's nice to see you in a different type of role Mm -hmm. yeah 
Okay, well, that will do it for this edition of Sexy and Surreal. Thanks, as always, to the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network for hosting the show. Be sure to check out all the other ones. So, so many at this point. Um, network's really, like, crushing it lately, so that's great. Yeah. And um, next time, Terry, we are hopping back over to Cronenberg territory. And we're going to see a lot more similarities, I think, between Cronenberg's first feature and his second feature. So we're going to be talking about Rabid. Yes, another movie I have surprisingly not seen. (laughs) Mm, The education continues. The education does continue. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, until then, let's give Joseph Merrick a fucking proper burial, shall we? Please. And thank you. Squad.